All right, if you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, as we prepare for our message this evening. We continue in this text today in Philippians 2 and verse 1. We've spent quite a few weeks in this text so far. It's just, it's such a powerhouse that you just can't but help stop and camp in some of these magnanimous passages and verses and just see all that comes out of it. And, and because of that, uh, because of this great text, we remain in the same title and asking ourselves, where does your mind go? Because that really is the pivotal question throughout our lives, I believe, and, and, and it's driven home verse after verse, phrase after phrase in this amazing section of Scripture. It's a, an excellent question for us to focus on, so let's read our text and then come back and address some of the particulars. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our our first message focused on the first two verses, and, and the power of these verses certainly supported that time. Those incredible Four rhetorical statements in verse 1 were absolutely amazing. And, and really, we could spend weeks there just focusing on that aspect of if there is any encouragement in Christ. And how many ways we are encouraged in Christ. Literally, it is an abundant and, and ever-flowing number of ways that, that each of these comes to fruition And so also with each of the questions and the consolation of love and the fellowship of the Spirit and the affection and compassion, all of these just powering our understanding of the blessings of Christ. So much depth that again we could spend several weeks there. And then verse 2, Paul takes those four statements forward by commanding four parallel applications to verse 1. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul revealed how to make the applications in verses 1 and 2 happen. And and these just critical verses for us to understand in our lives. That it is through, in a word, humility. 
that, that this, is, this is how the Christian life is manifest. That there is always a greater and greater need for humility. Because in that humility, what we are doing is we are elevating others above ourselves. And removing the, the scales from our eyes that keep us focused on our own needs and on our own hearts. And, and make us able to see the needs of others. And this was our first point. Think about this. And then verses eight, 5 to 8, which we looked at a couple weeks back, was our second point, which was think about Him. And here we transitioned to seeing the ultimate expression of the humility and unity that we are supposed to have in our Christian walk as expressed perfectly by Christ. And that Jesus' life became the expression of, that these powerful verses were to reflect and that our lives are to be patterned after Christ. And, and it is not too small of a thing to realize that every step, every day, we have to continue to strive to be like Jesus. To realize in our lives as we look into the mirror and as we assess our day-by-day walk, which ways we are not walking parallel with Him. Which ways we begin to walk on our own path. And we all do it every day. So there is this, this reality and this powerful expression of seeking to live as Christ lived and patterning our lives after Him. And the verses reveal to us how He did that in the two natures of Christ, that is, as fully God and fully man. And it was such a, a rich discussion as we went through that, and, and we only scratched the surface. I mean, this is, this is really all of Scripture. We could go all the way back to Genesis, and we could begin to unpack the deity of Christ, because we see the pre-incarnate Christ revealed to us in the book of Genesis and all the way through and, and into the New Testament. And that's there so that we can see him and so that we can see nuances and we can see parallels from our life to his and we can see contrasts from our life on this earth to the life we are to be living as he lived. And it's just a, a beautiful and inexhaustible expression of Christ's life. And so, as we considered that amazing introduction to think about this, that is the things of humility, the things of encouragement of our faith, and to think about Him, that is to think about the deity of Christ and all that He went through and, and the amazing expression of perfect humility and perfect unity with his Father that we now move to the last section in verses 9 to 11. And back to our title, Where Does Our Mind Go? Our third point in this section I've titled, Thinking About That. Thinking about this was our first point. Thinking about him, our second point. And now thinking about that. Well, what is that? Well, we see that when we look at the beginning portion of verse 9, where it says, for this reason also. That connection, that Greek conjunction, and that construction that's put together there ties us back to verses 5 to 8, and connects everything immediately together. So thinking about that is thinking about all that we have just seen in verses 5 to 8 about Jesus. 
Because of all that Jesus did and his humility and his self-deprivation, it tells us that God highly exalted him. That, that phrase, highly exalted, would be to say, to be lifted above everything. I, I get in my mind the picture, and, and I remember, and I've shared with you, you know, as a, as a young boy, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I remember, and I'm sure many of you do, the first time that you saw a picture of the earth from space. And it blew you away, didn't it? To think about that little planet down there. And all of the people on it. And how you saw so much in one little view. Well, that is the level of being highly exalted. Exalted above all things that this phrase shows to us that God highly exalted him. As it does so, it refers to some very specific components of exaltation. The first one that we think of is we think of Jesus being exalted or lifted up. The first thing that comes to mind is is his resurrection. That word meaning also to be lifted up. A different word than this, but to be be raised, to be resurrected. It is that power of his resurrection, different from every other resurrection that ever occurred. And there were not many before, but some notable ones. Jesus raised two people before. We saw Elijah raise a child. We saw Elisha raise a child. But this was not like that. This was not like Lazarus. These were not those who were raised again to die, but this was the first resurrection for all eternity. This was the first resurrection into an immortal body. I just continue to be shocked. What was it like to be sitting there? You know, can't you just see the disciples, right? Judas has gone out, he's totally blown it, he's killed himself, the Lord's been crucified, you know, we're just kind of sitting in a boo-hoo section going, woe is me. Anybody ever been there? Ever get into that woe is me too, thank you. You know, that, that just woe is me, things just are, things are a bummer right now. And the Lord appears in their midst. <laughs> yeah, whoa. <laughs> that was an eye-opener. Okay, there's things in our eyes that we go, wow, that was pretty amazing, and we can all think of those. That was an eye-opener. And didn't just appear, but appeared in a physical body, appeared in a body that would eat food, appeared in a body that would move in and out of a room without opening any doors. How's that happen? That's one of those things I can't explain to you. I'm just telling you that's what, what it was. And not only what it was, but what it will be. For it is, we will be raised, as the scripture says, like him. So when we think of him being highly exalted, we think of his resurrection. And not just of his resurrection, but we think of his ascension, don't we? It's another one of those moments, and the Lord is so kind through his word to show us the the humanity and the frailty of these great men, these apostles, and how often at times, you know, you, you look at them and you go, boy, the, the best of men are men at best. And, and these guys, as wonderful as they were, they were men at best. And in Acts chapter 1, 
and verse, verse 8, the Lord's given them this final decree about what they're to do. They're, they're to basically the great commission of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, is Acts 1.8. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Here's another facet of him being highly exalted. He ascended before them. I mean, gotta be crazy when you're sitting in the room and the Lord appears or he goes out without opening any of the doors. And then how about when you see him ascend? Okay. (laughs) You know, we think of our day and age and we have these rocket propulsion packs and all these other fancy gizmos. Um, No gizmos. The Lord just ascends right out of their midst. (laughs) Verse 10, and they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. I I suspect we all would have been. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him going to heaven. Can't you wait? Can't you just wait to see him coming again? As he ascended into the sky, so he will descend into the mid-heaven to receive the dead in Christ and to receive the church. Can't you just wait for that? Highly exalted him above everything. Resurrection, ascension, Also, as Dr. MacArthur notes, in his coronation, as we've been going through Hebrews, we've repeatedly looked at one of the most highly quoted verses in the New Testament from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Lord said to my Lord, you shall make all of your enemies as a footstool for your feet. So sit at my right hand until you make all of your enemies as a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. This was the coronation. What did Jesus say? After finally Caiaphas is pushed and the Lord is saying nothing as they're accusing him and making false accusations. And he says, do you answer nothing? He goes, tell me, are you the son of the living God? And what is Jesus' reply? It is as you say. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. His coronation. He is there today sitting at the right hand of power. He is sitting today as the ruling king. Highly exalted above all things. Resurrection, ascension, coronation, and perhaps most glorious beloved in his intercession. In his intercession. I I, I just, I love to think of a couple of these verses we've we've preached through this recently and we've read it again but let me just read for you one more time hebrews 4 and verse 14 therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens highly exalted jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He knows our needs. When we pray to him, when we pray to him because of physical struggles, he knows them in spades. 
He who was marred more than any man, who endured the scourging and through whose stripes we are healed. He is there to make intercession for us. Or the, the beautiful text from one of my favorite chapters in Scripture from Romans chapter 8 where we see the, the beautiful understanding formally and proclamation of Jesus' intercession in Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Paul asks in a question. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, highly exalted, who is at the right hand of God, coronated as king, who also intercedes for us. Revelation tells us that the enemy is every day making accusation against the believers. We understand that accusation, don't we? Sometimes we allow ourselves to believe it because we know who we are, and that's a good thing. It's right for us to realize how far short we fall of the glory of God. But he ever lives to make intercession. As the enemy comes and, and he stands before the throne of God, and says, that one who alludes, who pretends, who stands as if he were your herald and falls short every day. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I have paid for his sins. That is my child. That's what he says to us. How glorious is that? How high and lifted up is that? What ascension. And Jesus could have done none of these if he did not come to earth and live the life of a man. He could not have been raised from the dead. He could not have ascended into heaven for already he existed in heaven. He could not have been crowned king from a lower position to be brought up because already he was God. He could not intercede and know our weaknesses were he not to have walked the soil and to know our hearts and to know the struggles that we go through. And it is because of all of these that in Jesus becoming a man that he also is able and was and did pay the price for sin. And not only did he pay the price for sin, but he also was made the judge of all per John 5.22. Think about that component for a minute. This is, this is one of those kind of sleeper verses that you read over. You know, we love to read the book of John. We tell people to read the book of John. And in John chapter 5 and verse 22, we have really what I think is this just incredible verse. John 5, 22, for it says, For not even the Father judges anyone. For not even the Father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son. He is the ultimate judge. When we go through and when we read, go back into the Old Testament and read those powerhouse sections of judgment in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, that is Christ. All judgment. He gives all judgment to the Son. Highly exalted him above all things. So because of Jesus' humiliation, because of his coming to earth as a man, because of his living in perfect unity to the Father's will, God gave him the greatest name ever, as the end of verse 9 reveals. And it says there in the end of verse 9, and bestowed on him 
the name which is above every name. How many names can you think of for God? A lot of them, right? I mean, there's a whole book on my shelf about the names of God and all that they mean. How many for Jesus? A lot of them, too. Sometimes we don't stop and realize that. Of course, his name, Jesus, God saves. His name, his title, more appropriately, the Christ or the Messiah. His name, Son of Man. His name, Savior. His name, Son of David. His name, King of the Jews. And in Revelation 19, even His name which no one knows. His name in Revelation 19.16, which is the name that's being spoken about here. Revelation 19 and verse 16. And on his robe and his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. The hallelujah chorus is just too incredible to believe. You know, I just, I want to break out in song, but unfortunately that's already recorded and many of you have seen that and have already been damaged, so I will spare you of that repeat performance. But it's just King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Lord. He is master. That's what that word Lord means. It means master. Lord, master, Adonai. Back to Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai. Master. He is master. He is Lord of all. He is ruler. He cannot be Savior of our lives unless He is Lord of our lives. We have to submit ourselves in all things to Him. We have to realize that every day we fall short of that and grow towards it more and more. But He is Lord. He is master. Listen all the way back to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 21. Isaiah 45 and verse 21 to 23 reads, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. This is the title, Lord. This is the one to whom every living thing will swear allegiance. This is the power of the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The name that is above every name. And verse 10 carries forward the impact of this name where it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Recognize that in those three different categories, in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, there are two separate groups in every category. 
two separate groups in heaven. The angelic realm who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and the redeemed who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and as they depart from this earth are immediately in his presence. Two groups in heaven, two groups on earth. And we see if we were to look at those two groups in heaven, Revelation 4 gives us a beautiful picture of those two groups. You can go and look at those texts on your own. Two on earth. There is the redeemed on earth. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess. And that if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The redeemed on the earth bow the knee to Christ. The, those that are rebellious upon the earth. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and forward talking about the unredeemed upon the earth and two under the earth. We see that text in 1 Peter 3.18, there is the angelic, the doomed angelic realm, those who were cast out and who are kept in chains of darkness until the Lord will ultimately release them. And then there are the dead who are not in Christ, who are under the earth in that realm. And all will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all will bow the knee. That is, that is to, to show reverence, to show submission. Bowing is that outward sign of submission. In the ancient world, whenever you were before a king or a person of high rank or authority, you bowed to that person. In most cases, you bowed onto both knees. In some cases, you bowed with your head to the ground, and you did not lift your head up off of the ground or raise your head to that king until he called you to raise your head, or oftentimes his soldiers would remove your head because that was what was required to be in the presence of that king. How much more the presence of this king. How incredible was it? Well, we know from Isaiah 6, don't we? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the glory of God. Bowing each one under this name. And in verse 11, it expands on the impact of the name from verses 9 and 10, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word confess means to say the same thing. We talk about it a lot, and it's a really important Greek word. It's the same word that we get our word homogenized from, like homogenized milk means it's all one substance. Homogeneous, one substance. The word for confession is Homo legeo, it is to say the same thing. Homo, same, logos, word. Same word, say the same word. When we confess to God, we are saying the same word that God says. We are saying to God that yes, Jesus Christ, your son is Lord. He is master, he is king. That is the confession that will go on, and as we know and have talked about a number of times, as Romans 10.9, which I just shared with you, talks about confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that those are ongoing actions. 
We can't confess one time and say that's good. We can't profess our belief in Christ one time and say that's good. It's an ongoing life. It's a a day-by-day growth. It's a greater understanding, a greater burden every day for our sin. And I've shared with you before, and I, I, I just, I continue to reflect in my own mind, for I want my own heart to be the same way as I stood and listened to my mentor at 70 years old stand in the pulpit at Grace Community Church and say, I understand I am a greater sinner today than ever I have understood. And each day my sin becomes more keen and more disgusting and more hateful to me. About fell out of the pew. You? Yeah. Him. Me. You. Every day. Because as we get there, that's when we're really realizing all that Christ has done. That's when we're really striving for the purity that it means to truly bow, to truly confess that that bowing external symbol of our belief in God as Lord, as Master, as Adonai, and that physical continual expression that Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Lord. I speak it, I live it, and everything around me shows that that's who I am. What a beautiful acknowledgement. And this word confess is an emphatic form. It really means to gratefully acknowledge or to fully confess. All of our hearts, all of our souls being lifted out of us as it were to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As verse 11 concludes, the result of all of this is the glory that must go to God the Father. John 13 and verses 31 and 32 say, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 32, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. The glory that Christ brings to the Father is is a beautiful picture. The chronology I've talked about a number of times in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 20 to 28. Write it down, study it, keep studying it, keep looking at it. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 28. There's a chronology that comes forward of the resurrection. Begins with Christ, the first fruits, the one who is highly exalted. And it moves forward and you get all the way to verse 28 and we read this beautiful proclamation of the glory of God all of this to the glory of God 1 Corinthians 15 28 when all things are subjected to him that is the father then the son himself Jesus will also be subject subjected to the one who subjects all things to him so that God may be all in all. The timing of this, beloved, takes us to the entrance to the eternal state. It's moved all the way from the resurrection of Christ in verse 20 through the modern era of the church, through the rapture and end times, through the thousand-year millennium, and now to the eternal state. And it is here at the eternal state that Christ the Son will be subjected, passive verb, 
to God the Father so that God may be all in all. So that the ultimate glory will ultimately be returned to the Father as Christ has conquered the last enemy, death. And when you think about death, where will death end? Does it end at the beginning of the thousand-year millennium? After the rapture and after the battle of Armageddon? No. There are many who come through. There are still children born. There are still people on earth. It's not until the great white throne judgment where death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire right before the transition to the eternal state. At that point, Jesus Christ makes every enemy under his feet or has every enemy under his feet. And it is at that point that God receives the ultimate glory. When we think about these verses, beloved, where does your mind go? Your mind ought to explode to Christ. I mean, it, it ought to be like a, a track star in the Olympic finals, blowing out of the blocks in the 100-meter sprint. I mean, every muscle in his body is tuned like a piano string, and he sprints out of those blocks, and his whole body explodes in force forward as he heads towards that finish line. That's where our mind should go as we consider every phrase, every word of these 11 verses. They are powerhouses, and yet where does our mind go? We know where our mind goes. Sometimes it is not going there. Sometimes it's going 180 degrees the other direction, isn't it? That's why the Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What do we do after we take it captive? We have to put it somewhere, don't we? We have to turn it here. We have to turn it to these verses, to this understanding. We have to do as Colossians 3.5 says, and mortify those deeds of the flesh. Mortify those thoughts. Put them to death. And then we have to recognize and put on Christ a wonderful study through the New Testament. Get your concordance out and look up the phrase, put on. And realize all of the ways that every time it's used, we are putting on Christ we are putting on that mindset. We are changing and removing all that we are that is not contrary to him. Beloved, this must be our New Year's resolution of every believer. That more and more each day we would put on Christ and the power of his love and the amazement of what he has done in his life would so overwhelm us that as well as we live today, as much as we did right, that we would purpose in our hearts and minds that tomorrow I will do better. All for his glory. Amen.